What is your lot in life? What is your lot in life? We use this figure of speech to identify a prevailing circumstance of our lives or our unique calling, maybe a reality to which we are resigned. And often the idea is it seems to be taken somewhat negatively. Poverty seems to be his lot in life. Her lot in life is to serve her aging parents. He hates being a shoe salesman, but it is his lot in life. She is the sweetest lady, but her lot in life is to live with an ornery husband. What is your lot in life? Many in our society seek to transform their lot in life by winning the lottery. They purchase lottery tickets in hopes that the lot will be cast in their favor and that they'll get lots and lots of money and that that will change their life, which will then become a lot better. Or so they reason. While many view their lot in life as a matter of fate or luck, even those who believe in the providence of God realize that on some level our lot in life is inherited. It is not something we can fully determine for ourselves. Now that does not mean that our actions and affections have nothing to do with our lot in life. We might take as a very obvious example a drug addict or a hopeless alcoholic. They self-inherit a life of dependency, of irresponsibility, of betrayal, deceit, often abject poverty that leads to lifting money from other people. More respectable sinners, as people might think of it, also inherit a life that they've in some sense created for themselves. A life of materialism, immorality, selfish ambition, religious pride, whatever it is, there's a sort of lot in life that is somewhat inherited, something we can't do anything about, and something that we on another level contribute to in some way. Our lot in life is a natural consequence of what we prize and what we desire to some extent. So when I ask you, what is your lot in life, how do you answer that question? What comes to mind? Again, many times we think of this in somewhat negative terms. It's something to which we're resigned. But I'd like us to think here clearly about this question Let me say that if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your lot in life is to walk in intimate fellowship with God. This is your lot. This is your inheritance. If you trust in the saving grace of Christ, your inheritance is this, to know God as the all-sufficient satisfaction of your soul. This truth pulsates through Psalm 16. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 16 is a song in which King David lyrically expresses his soul-satisfying joy in God. God is his lot in life. God is his inheritance. There's something again which we cannot do about that, and there's something that it is part of our pursuit in life. But to come to terms with this truth, David turns it over and over in this song. We do not see here any particular danger in his life. There's no particular trial that he is facing. It is just simply from start to start a message, a meditation on the purpose of God 
to bring us joy and to satisfy our souls. It is a meditation on our lot in life as the followers of the Lord. So exalting that his relationship with God is his inheritance, his privileged inheritance and lot in life, David, first of all, in the first six verses, expresses his loyalty to and his delight in God. The psalm starts a miktam of David. We don't know precisely what the word means, a liturgical term, a musical term of some sort, but David is the author. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We see in these verses, God is our refuge. Genuine, soul-satisfying faith, then, I think, takes a massive risk. It rests exclusively in God as the only source of security and refuge. You are my refuge. I can't see Him. I can't touch Him. But God is my only refuge. And there's a million places to seek refuge in this world. Tangible places. But the believer turns to God and says, In you alone is my refuge. Secondly, God is our Lord. This also radically separates believers from the world in which we live. We rejoice as God's slaves. Generally, when we say, I'm a slave of someone, it's not a good idea. But we say, God is my master, I am his slave, and that is good. You are my Lord, David says. And thirdly, God is the sole source of our good. God is the source of all that is truly good in our lives, and God is the only source of all that is good in our lives. I have no good apart from you. David continues to express his loyalty to God, rejoicing in his relationship with the Lord, here in a unique way in verse 3. Something we might not consider, but he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Who are the saints in the land? Remember in the Bible, saints are always living people, not dead people. Saints are the holy ones, those who are consecrated to God, and they live in the land. That is, King David, promised land. There are individuals here in this land who are consecrated to God, who are serving God and love the Lord. David says, do you see those people? Those are the people in whom I delight. When I find people that rejoice in God, I rejoice in them. I exult in them. I delight in them. Who are the people that bring you delight? Whose friendship do you prize most? Who is esteemed most in your eyes? I know there was a day when for me that was Wilt Chamberlain. (laughs) Many of you never have a clue who that is. But he was a professional basketball player that grew up just a few miles from where I grew up and I knew everything about Wilt Chamberlain. I read his biography, I tracked his exploits on the hardwood, and I took great delight in Wilton Norman Chamberlain. I even knew his middle name. But something happened. Yes, I guess on a natural level, I grew out of my childishness and infatuation with this ball player. But the more that I came to know God, the more that I saw how his life did not line up with God. And it it became repugnant to me the way that he lived. 
Now, to this day, I still appreciate his abilities in basketball. I think he was the greatest player that ever lived. I'd argue that. And I think I can appreciate those talents. But when we genuinely delight in God, we take increasing delight in people who love God. Today, my heroes, the people that bring me delight, and most of them, by the way, are terrible basketball players, and uh, some of them are probably just basically geeks, but that's, that's, that doesn't matter now. Now, I love them because they love God. And that's one way in which we demonstrate loyalty to God is to love the people that love Him. So my heritage in this waking world is to walk in fellowship with people that gain delight in the Lord. Who are the people in whom you take delight? Who do you look up to? Who do you esteem? Your answers reveal a lot about your relationship with God. Where we draw close to God, we draw close to those who love Him. At this point in the psalm, David looks at the other side of the track, the lot, the lot of those who do not share the orientation that he shared here to this point. God is my refuge. He is my Lord. There's no good apart from Him, and I delight in the people that delight in Him. But there's another track. Verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. David acknowledges the sorrow of those who chase false gods. This word sorrows, the Hebrew word often speaks of physical pain. It typically does. So those who worship false gods will be bruised and battered by them, David says. The lot in life of those who run from God and chase the allures of this world is profound suffering. Satan does not want to coddle his followers. He wants to eat them alive. And he does this with regularity. David says, all who chase false gods have separated themselves from the source of all goodness. There's great suffering that results. David promises he will never dishonor the Lord by worshiping these false gods. The second half of verse 4, he says, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. It was common for pagans to take the blood of sacrificial animals and in ritual to pour out that blood in their sacrifices. David will not do that. He will not so honor these gods. He will not even take their name on his lips. Their names are a curse that he will not speak. In stark contrast to the false gods who destroy their followers, David proclaims, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Chosen portion. Here the imagery is of one honored with a service of food. God is the one that we eat. We find sustaining strength in the food that is the Lord. My cup, here the imagery is of drink poured into the cup of an honored guest. For David, this honor is directly related to knowing God. David drinks deeply of Yahweh as his inheritance. He is my portion. He is my cup. He then says the latter part of verse 5, You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So from food to drink to what's the image now? 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You hold my lot. It's imagery drawn from the conquest of Palestine. David refers here to ancestral land inheritance received by lot in the experience of the Israelites who had conquered the promised land. So the various tribes receiving by lot their inheritance in the land, he uses that imagery to say, my lot, my lines are you. See as he puts it there. You hold my lot. You my chosen portion and my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is that inheritance. We might think of the Levites in this context. You remember that they were not assigned a portion of land, but the Lord was their inheritance. But here we have this king from the tribe of Judah, and he says, my portion is the Lord. He is my inheritance. And I think it points us through the Levites to all of God's people to consider that He is our inheritance. He is our lot and our portion, no matter who we are. And so here then, I think, is a man who has learned to rejoice in the providence of God rather than to resist it. Because the Lord is His inheritance, all is well, and He rests in the providence of God. As I mentioned, when we say, what is your lot in life? Again, many people take this in a negative way. They read it that way. Our temptation is to find dissatisfaction with our lot in life. So we say things like, my lot, it's, I, I'm, when I think of my inheritance... When I think of what I have in this world and what I enjoy and who I am, I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not tall enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, or winsome enough. My life is miserable in these circumstances. You fill in the blanks. But this situation, my life stinks. It's my lot in life. Christian, I think we should come to terms with this text and this passage and to say that the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. We indeed have a beautiful inheritance. And all of our complaining and bellyaching and whining and general dissatisfaction with life, you know what it really is? It's really just an evidence that we don't know the Lord as we should. If we consider what God is, and we consider that as His people, we have been privileged to walk in fellowship with Him, He is my heritage. He is my lot in life. I have everything. And I rejoice. I look at life in a very different way as a beautiful inheritance because I know the Lord. David has expressed his loyalty to God in whom he delights, to the God who is his beautiful inheritance. And in the remainder of the psalm, he now rejoices in the benefits of knowing God. Verses 7 and following. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. This word counsel, when, when your inheritance is the Lord, you are supplied with wise counsel for life. 
What a tremendous blessing it is to know you're not left alone in the dark, but that God has spoken His Word. He gives guidance and direction. His Word is a light to our path. There is wisdom that comes from Him to steer us in how we deal with life. We thank God for this inheritance of His Word. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I don't think we should read this as an alternative word of counsel. God counsels me by His Word, and I have this other form of counsel that comes from within. Rather, I think here He's looking at His conscience responding to the counsel of God. So in the night when distractions fade away with the setting sun, David contemplates his life in light of God's counsel, and he is convicted and kept on track. Thank God for a conscience that can respond to what God has said. I have this counsel from God to steer me in the right path, and I have a conscience that responds to what God's Word has said. He lives a life of repentance. And this is a great heritage. To know what it is to face conviction of sin, to repent, is a great lot in life. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The Lord is with us. He is at my right hand. That is a place of authority and help. He brings then stability. I shall not be shaken. There's a stability in my life because of my inheritance of God Himself. His presence goes with us. Therefore, says David, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Knowing and walking with God leads to what? Answer the question as you read the text. Knowing and walking God leads to gladness. A whole being that rejoices. My very soul rejoices. Are you of the mind that following God is toilsome, somber labor? Do you get the idea that God specializes in keeping happiness in check? I don't know how else you read this psalm, but to say that my portion is the Lord and the result is gladness and fullness of joy. If I really grasped that God is my refuge, He is my Master, He is the source of all goodness, He is my beautiful inheritance who stands at my right hand such that I will never be shaken and will remain secure in Him. If I grasp these truths, how can I respond in any other way than with gladness and joy? He is my lot in life. The doleful, melancholy Christian who characteristically concentrates on what is wrong, on who is wrong, and on the wrong that will meet us on the road ahead, I think the simple truth is they have a weak relationship with God. If we know our lot, we know our inheritance in the Lord, we are filled with joy and gladness in Him. We must be. Is this giddy happiness all the time? Sometimes, perhaps. But not typically. 
C.S. Lewis put it so well, he said, there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It is too good to waste on jokes. Not a giddy, silly happiness. We live in a world where people are dying. We live in a world where sin is wreaking havoc and there is tragedy everywhere around us. If we are awake to other people, we know the suffering and the trial and the heartache of living in this world. We don't miss that and it doesn't make us silly. But there is in the midst of it all a sense of deep joy and gladness in God that cannot be stifled by the circumstances of life. He is my inheritance. My lot is to walk with God in this world. If that doesn't bring joy and gladness to my soul, there's something wrong with me. I have come, said Jesus, that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. Rejoice, writes the Apostle Paul, and again I will say it, rejoice. That's what David does here. My heart is glad. My whole being, or even literally my glory, rejoices in the Lord. My flesh, he says at the end of verse 9, also dwells secure. The word flesh is flesh. It's our physical standing before God, our confidence in God applies to our physical condition. We dwell secure. This is the rest and the confidence of the one who dwells with God, whose lot is the Lord. Our flesh is secure. I, I think of Jesus here as He rebukes the disciples when they're about to drown at sea. And I always think, that's just kind of unfair. I mean, you're about to die. And you're not supposed to be afraid. I think Jesus knows our weakness and our frame. But I think what he's saying there is not playing games. I think there's counsel there. Even in the very face of death, trusting in me, you can be secure. You can be at peace. You can rest in the back of the boat while it's about to sink. Because your confidence in God is so great. Now, I don't know that I'll ever live to get there. If I'm in the middle of a sea and the boat is sinking, I'm going to be afraid, I think. I don't think there's any two ways around it. But my flesh can actually dwell in God in that situation. I can be at rest and at peace in His sovereign purposes in my life. Never does faith have to fail. Never did Christ's faith fail. I will dwell secure in God. That's my lot. The boat's going down? No problem. My inheritance is the Lord. And some of that is brought out here in verse 10 as to why we have such confidence. For, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is the grave, the realm of the dead. God even rules death, our last and most ruthless enemy. I don't need to fear because my lot in life is the Lord. He will secure me even into the next life and through death. There's no fear. God will not permit His Holy One to see corruption. How do we read that? 
Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13 use this very verse to say that it was fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. Does it apply to David? Perhaps on some level, as hyperbole it does. David rests secure in the purposes of God in death. But ultimately, this word can be fulfilled only by Christ and only by one who literally dies and rises from the dead within two to three days. Because there's no other way but that corruption will set in to a dead body. All of our bodies as we die will corrupt and decay. David could not mean that of himself in a physical sense. But as Peter acknowledges, as Paul sees, in Jesus this was completely fulfilled. And think of the joy now that we have to understand how this all works. David prophetically, under the inspiration of God's Spirit in this text, says that the Holy One will not see corruption. We understand the Holy One now to be Jesus Christ who did not see corruption. His body was raised from the dead. And as the first fruits of those who defeated death, never seeing corruption, we walk in His train, we follow in His victory, and one day our bodies too will be resurrected. And there will be no more corruption. This pointing to Jesus, our Savior. This pointing to our security, not in our own good works and who we are, but in His power. His resurrection strength. You will not abandon my soul to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And because the Holy One did not see corruption and rose from the dead, we will walk in resurrection victory into eternity, which is where He now leans. Verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There again is our inheritance, the path of life. It's not only the path that eventually comes to the goal of life. It is that. But it's the path that is itself life. To walk in the counsel of God, to walk in the way that God, where God points us, is to walk in life. It is the life that the wise enjoy. Fullness of joy speaks of a soul fully satisfied in God. Again, we don't see here the the dour, dutiful Christian. We see one who sees in God fullness of joy. Just as I may not have confidence when I'm sinking in the boat that my flesh dwells secure with God, So it is as I contemplate my relationship with God that I may not sense fullness of joy. But we must know that God is the source of just that. Fullness, complete, absolute joy in God, our inheritance. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This pleasure in God, this fullness of joy, this rejoicing and gladness of heart, it doesn't end in this life. It simply carries forward into the next and is transformed into something fully other. In your, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73 puts it, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
there are pleasures in this world. There is joy in this physical existence. But it's a joy that we receive as a gift from God, from whom every gift comes. And it's a joy that we enter into because of our worship of Him, because He is our inheritance. He gives us all things to enjoy, and we should get about the task of enjoying them. But we enjoy them because in Him is the ultimate pleasure forevermore. An eternal pleasure that always satisfies and never disappoints. And so we ask in light of this psalm, what is your lot in life? What is your lot in life? When we hear that question, and so often it's answered in negative terms, so often answered with resignation, here is my lot in life, may we as followers of Christ realize that's not a sufficient answer. We so often answer it negatively, but let me say first of all, before returning to that thought, if, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've not been born again, You've not come to place your faith and your confidence in Christ as your salvation. You don't answer that question negatively enough. You're really playing games with yourself to say, well, my lot in life is this, but I'm okay. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're not okay. Your lot in life, your inheritance is to get drained dry by the false gods of this world. You will chase after things that will continue to prove empty. And right now you may be chasing something that you say doesn't prove empty at all. It's very satisfying. But one day it's going to end up on the heap of false idols with all of the others. You will chase after possessions, friends, fame, sex, entertainment, ease, escape, And you'll find that every joy in this waking world is short-lived and leaves you absolutely empty. There will be no fullness of joy in the gods of this world, in the passions of the flesh that pull us away from God. Nothing but emptiness. The answer is to trust the One who defeated death who died as the sacrificial lamb in your place, bearing the penalty of your sin, and rose from the dead in victory over death, which is the penalty of sin. To put your confidence, your hope, and your faith in Christ, to let go of this world and your self-satisfied means of religion, and to embrace Christ alone, finding in Him your lot in life and your inheritance. That's the answer. Turn from your sin and trust Him as your Savior today. And you'll know fullness of joy. That source will be secured. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, there's rebuke here, isn't there? What is my lot in life? What did I think when that question was asked? What is my lot in life? Our constant whining and complaining Our constant dissatisfaction with our lives as they are is really an evidence that our idols are failing us and we don't like it. We want things to be a certain way because we find joy in places outside of the Lord who is fullness of joy. 
What is our inheritance? What is our lot in this life? God is my refuge, my master, and the source of all goodness, and He's chosen me as His own. He is my beautiful inheritance who stands by my right hand such that I will never be shaken, but will dwell secure forevermore. And He's chosen me as His own. His counsel leads me into paths of life. He is the defender at my right hand in whom I dwell secure. He satisfies my soul, filling me with gladness and joy. And He is my inheritance. He has defeated death in my place and will one day resurrect my body from the grave. He shows me the path of life. In His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand eternal pleasures. This is my lot in life. This is my inheritance to walk with this God. So for those who are elderly among us, maybe you've rounded the last corner in life, remember your soul satisfaction is not found in your grandchildren. It's not found in the ease of retirement, in relative health, or in what your freedom allows you to do these days, it is found only in the Lord. All kinds of wonderful things that He may pour out into our lives and that we can rightly enjoy, but He alone is our soul's all-sufficient satisfaction. For those of middle age and younger adults, your soul's satisfaction is not found in the success of your career your family goals, your children's prosperity, your possessions. It's found in the Lord alone. Young people, at this place, you're living with parents. Those parents put some guidelines around your life. They limit certain expressions of life that you might like to pursue and they they provide some uh, repression in some ways, positively or negatively. But you've got somebody there who's kind of steering and guiding, but there's a day when you'll be loose from that and you'll be steering your own life. Let me say in light of this psalm with great assurance that you will never regret living for God you will never find in Him anything but your soul's ultimate satisfaction. And you will find no satisfaction outside of Him, ever. You won't. And if you see hypocrisy in your parents or your church leaders, yes, we are sinners. We're not perfect examples of finding joy in God. But do not be so foolish as to see our failures and turn away from your soul's ultimate joy. That would be a tragedy. Then those who would fail you would thus fail you ultimately. If they turn you away from finding fullness of joy in the Lord, that's a tragedy of your own making. Don't go there. Seek the Lord with all your heart and know that in Him there is fullness of joy forever. Believer, our inheritance is the Lord. 
Our lot in life is to walk in fellowship with Him. We need to pause and consider what privilege is ours, what joy is ours in our relationship with the Lord, who then leads us to understand and to filter and to enjoy all things in this world as we should. Not for our own sakes, but walking in glory with Him and finding in Him our soul's treasure. What is our lot in life? To know and love the God who is all my delight. Let's think on it one more time. The God who is all my delight, my beautiful inheritance, in whose presence there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That is my lot in this life. That is my inheritance. How can I think any other way than to rejoice in gladness in Him? As we read earlier from Psalm 36, let me just remind you of these great words. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Let's bow in prayer before the Lord. Father, how do we pray? What do we say? We pause before You in the stillness of this moment and contemplate that You are our soul's gladness and joy. For those of us who know You as Savior, we pause to say with great thanksgiving, You are our lot in life. May we come to know the joy of walking in fellowship with You. Thank You for this inheritance. Not that we have earned, but that You have given us by Your grace. I pray that You'll draw to Yourself now by the conviction of Your Spirit anyone who knows not Christ as Savior. Bring them into the wonder of this joy And may we rejoice in fellowship with those who find such joy in You. Father, rebuke us in our sin. How dull are our affections for You. How negative we can be as we consider our lot in life. You are our inheritance. In this we rejoice. Deepen us and help us to sing with gladness for all that you've accomplished for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.